we will look at Luke together, and I'm going to be explaining some things from the first two chapters that we didn't read, and then we'll go back to the book of Leviticus, and we're going to have a blast in Leviticus. Um, I'll have, I have some interesting things for you there. <laughs> There's, there are a couple interesting connections between the parasha, like our reading from the Torah, specifically from the book of Leviticus, and the book of Luke. And I thought I'd point them out to you. One is that the Messiah is called ultimately the son of Adam, Ben Adam. And, uh, there's a, there's a place in Leviticus where this term Adam comes up. And it's not actually translated as Adam. So, um, I'm giving you a sneak preview on that one in our little trailer here. Um, also, we see that most of the events in the book of these first chapters of Luke happen in the context of the temple and the temple service. The coming of John the Baptist and Yeshua the Messiah, the genesis of their coming is in the temple and the temple service. And the book of Leviticus is what really begins to explain the details about all these offerings and what the priests do in the temple. Another really cool connection is this special term that is applied to the Messiah. He is called the Christ. He's called the Messiah. He's called the Anointed One. And I think this is the first portion where that term for the Christ, the Anointed One, begins to come up in the book of Leviticus. Did you know that? So I'm going to point that out in a moment also. Actually, I could do that right now. It's, it's pretty cool. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3, is just one example. There's a passage where it talks about what to, um, the procedure if the anointed priest uh, sins or commits a transgression. It's a really big deal. He has to sacrifice a bull, which is worth a lot of cash in those days. So it's a, it's a pretty big deterrent against that. And uh, did you notice what he's called? Chapter 4, verse 3, he's called the anointed priest. And in Hebrew, he's called the Kohen. What does Kohen mean? Priest. priest. The Kohen Ha-Mashiach. What does Ha-Mashiach mean? That's right, the anointed one, the Messiah. So when it says the anointed priest in Hebrew, it says the Kohen Ha-Mashiach. So he's, it's calling him the Messiah priest, the priestly Messiah. And, you know, we, we, uh, people in our culture, they talk about Jesus Christ as if, like, Christ is his last name. But Christ means the king. It's a very powerful thing to call him the king of the universe and to call him your personal king. But even earlier than that, the reference to the Christ means a priest. So Jesus says Yeshua's first job description is as a priest. Therefore, the secrets in the book of Leviticus point to Messiah's job description in heaven. Have you ever wondered, like, what he's been doing for the last, however many, like, 1900 and, what, like, 30 or 40 years or whatever, since he was last seen on the planet? I mean, he's in heaven, yeah, but, like, is he just kind of kicking back and relaxing and drinking a nice lemonade and having people drop grapes in his mouth? Or what is he doing? And, you know, I mean, what's he doing at his father's right hand? Well, we learn that he lives to intercede for us, which is a priestly ministry. We learn that he... He's always praying for you because he's totally backing you. He totally believes in you. And so we're going to learn uh, when we look at Leviticus about that, that priestly ministry and how the anointed priest, the Kohen HaMashiach, is a picture of the ultimate Mashiach, Yeshua the Anointed One. Um, another interesting connection is in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. You can look at that with me. It's describing the parents of Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist. And it has some, it says something very interesting about them that actually doesn't fit the, the, the popular theology of a lot of people. It says, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now this is interesting because it debunks a popular myth. This fact about, uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. In Hebrew, their names are Zechariah and Elisheva. Um, let's look at another passage together that kind of connects to this in the book of James. I think James must have loved reading the book of Leviticus because there are quite a few concepts from Leviticus that pop up in his writings, only he applies them to the Messiah. In uh, the book of James, chapter 3, James, oh sorry, James chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. 
we read something interesting. Uh, James has an issue with how people are getting treated in the early Messianic congregations. They're playing favorites. If a guy walks in and he has a big fat gold ring and he's dressed really fancy, they treat him really nice. And if a guy walks in and he just doesn't look like he's going to have as much money to contribute to the church to keep it running or whatever, not that they had churches as such back then, then they just they don't give him as much attention. And uh, James was really upset about this. So let's listen to what he has to say. He says in uh, verse 9 of uh, James chapter 2, If you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the Torah as transgressors. He's talking about the Torah here as if it's still applied to believers, interestingly enough. For whoever keeps the whole Torah, the whole law, and stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't commit murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the Torah. So speak, and so act, as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty, by the Torah of freedom, we could also say. For judgment will be merciless to one who show no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he kind of, there's this balance here, isn't there? He's, uh, he's talking as if God's law continues to apply to believers, and he's also talking about how God's mercy is greater. And uh, I love that balance. And the main point here is some people read this passage and say, well, look, you know, if I break one commandment, I've broken them all, so I'm just going to throw the whole first four-fifths of my Bible out. It doesn't apply to me because I just can't keep it all, so why bother trying? And uh, that's not what James was getting at here. That's very inconsistent logic. James was saying the law continues to apply to you. And one of God's commandments is don't show favoritism. Uh, and when you show favoritism, it's like you're breaking all the other commandments also. It's a big deal. So basically what he's saying is, sin is sin, guys. What he wasn't saying there is, you know what? You can't keep the law, so don't even bother trying. There is a place for commitment to living a righteous lifestyle. And of course, as believers in Messiah, we know that only happens when he transfigures us, when he fills us with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. So that's a, that's a little concept there from Zechariah and Elizabeth's life that debunks that myth. These people were actually righteous in the sight of God. They were actually keeping God's commandments and requirements. So if they could do it even before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, maybe it is possible. Maybe. <laughs> um, another, another fascinating thing here that I love about this concept of like um, his forgiveness and the place that his mercy holds is in the book of Leviticus, starting in chapter 4. If you want to keep your thumb in Leviticus and your, your other thumb or whatever in, in Luke, you'll be doing well because we're going to be toggling back and forth frequently here. Leviticus chapter 4 verse 2 talks about God's definition of sin. Uh, 4 verse 2 says, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord, which Yahweh has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them. So basically what he's saying there is he connects sin with doing stuff that God said not to do, and uh, we learn that he basically, the same phrase is used in chapter 4, verses 13, verses 22, verses 27, and then Leviticus 5, 17. So he says it over and over. It's kind of how he prefaces each section. So, so that's something I really love about our Creator. He's not like some fuzzy and indefinite thing, and we don't really know what he thinks or what he would really like of us. The scripture says he, he's very clearly communicated with us. We know his mind. We know what he's asking of us. And we also know what constitutes crimes against his heavenly government. Isn't that nice of him to do that for us? I appreciate that. No confusion there. Here's the interesting thing. The flip side is in James. Let's toggle over to James again. Chapter 4, verse... Uh, he kind of gives a broader definition. Sin isn't just doing stuff that God said not to do. In his, his mitzvot, his commandments, in James chapter 4, verse 17, we also learn that, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. So we learn that sin also, according to his definition, like, you know, committing a crime against the Almighty is when we know the right thing to do and we don't do it. And thankfully, again, he hasn't left us in the dark. He's given us really clear life instructions. And I love how there's just this awesome place to grow and studying that and learning what, what a real disciple is all about. So I, I appreciate that. Um, it's kind of cool how the book of Luke ties into that also. What was John the Baptist's mission? His mission? Hmm? To prepare the way. That's correct. 
How does that look on a quantifiable level, though? Did you notice? People were coming to him and saying, like, what should we do? And he always had practical advice for them. You know, the Roman soldiers would come and say, sir, what should we do? And he said, well, be content with your wages. Uh, don't, don't brutalize people, etc. It's like he, 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 had a, he established a very clear connection between preparing for the Messiah and living life right. And I appreciate that. It wasn't just kind of uh, out there spiritual floaties or something, you know. It was practical, practical stuff. And uh, it also says in Luke chapter 1, I want to flip there for a second, verse 15, about, uh, about John. I'll just read this to you, because this is powerful, and I believe it's for each one of us who want, to take, who want to take the call. It says, He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and He will drink no wine or liquor, and He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in His mother's womb. And He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord, back to Yahweh their God. It is He who will go as a forerunner before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. So there's the core, hey? It's when it hits your heart and you turn from like just not caring about God to getting serious about God and to getting the attitude that the righteous have where you kind of have that Clint Eastwood squint when it comes to doing what's right. You get serious about it. I don't know why I'm on a Clint Eastwood kick today. I haven't watched any Clint Eastwood movies in so long. But it's just for me anyway, there's a picture of being serious there. <laughs> Right. So I want to I want to explain a couple of things from the book of Luke with you. Well, you know these first couple of chapters in the book of Luke. When you read them, what time of year do you usually think of? When do we? When often are these the chapters read? Christmas time, right? These are the classic Christmas chapters. Everybody reads them. But it's interesting that originally these chapters actually took place at a different time of year. We can calculate from when John's father was doing his priestly service, based on Jewish history, when he was doing his service, when John the Baptist was conceived, when he was born, and therefore also when Messiah was born, because all those dates are interconnected. That's a really big study, and we're not going to get into it right now. But I'll, I'll give you that teaser, and we'll, we'll, we'll cover that topic another time. The cool thing, though, about these first chapters of Luke is, you know, when Jewish people look at them, they say, oh, that's what Christians read at Christmas time. These are not Jewish at all. Oh, they're not Jewish. But really, when we look at the first couple chapters of Luke, they're deeply Jewish documents. They, they pulse with the things that Jewish people are most passionate about. Um, hopes that the people of Israel have had for thousands of years. Things that they've prayed for three times a day. Can you imagine millions of people praying three times a day for something for several thousand years? That's a lot of requests. And the book of Luke, in its first couple of chapters, it's really in touch with this. So I want to just look at a couple examples of that with you. Let's look at Luke chapter 1 together. Luke chapter 1, verse 32, says that in reference to Yeshua, He will be great and will be called the Son of of Elyon, the Most High. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Who does he reign over? The house of Jacob. Who's that a reference to? That's a reference to the people of Israel. That's correct. And, of course, both to those who are naturally born and to those who are grafted in. Right? So we know who Yeshua is going to reign over in, in the millennial kingdom. Did you know what the synagogue in Prince Albert was called? That was uh, dissolved, I think, in the 80s? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good try. Don't think too far from this passage. Beth Jacob. The synagogue here in Prince Albert was called Beit Yaakov. And... This verse here says that Messiah, Luke chapter 1, verse 33, will reign over Beit Yaakov, Beth Jacob, the house of Jacob. So I just want to give you an example of how to the Jewish people, the house of Jacob is a very Jewish term. It's talking about how Yeshua has that, has that ultimate destiny of being the king of Israel. Just like David was an awesome king. He was a popular leader. He was a great hero. And Yeshua is going to be that for the people of Israel. His reputation will be redeemed. Wow. There was a thriving Jewish community here. Hmm. I'd like to go there and see those sometime. 
And, 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 and I mean, like, praises to the Almighty that he is reviving a Jewish community presence here in Prince Albert. I believe there's something very important about the revival that Messiah is going to bring through to his people when that Jewish element is revived. So hallelujah for that. <laughs> um, that's a cool one. Also, you know, the throne of David. David's throne is the throne of Israel. And we learn in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 that indeed Yeshua, the Messianic Prince, is going to reign in the midst of Israel, in his capital. Um, moving on, and you can flip the picture here. A couple times. There's a picture of the temple, one more. Okay, there we are. I'm not sure if you can see that, but this is a, this is a picture of a Brit Milah. It's like the, uh, when uh, an eight-year-old, eight-day-old son is brought into the covenant of circumcision. And you can see them singing some of the liturgy there. Um, in ch- Luke chapter 1, verse 59, we read this interesting verse. It happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, that is John the Baptist, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. This is interesting. They come to circumcise him on the eighth day, and that's when he's going to be named. In other words, this baby didn't have a name for the first seven days. <laughs> do we usually do that in our culture? Leave off naming a boy for over a week? Not usually, but that's a classic Jewish tradition, and it continues to be today. Uh, we also see in chapter 2, verse 21 of Luke, the same thing about the Messiah. And when eight days had passed... Before his circumcision, his name was then called Yeshua, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So if you want to just flip it over, here's another picture of these guys all praying together and dedicating this child to the Heavenly Father and bringing him into the covenant of Abraham. And one more. And there's yet another picture. I think that's where they're actually calling the name. So uh, I, I, the interesting thing is, one of the uh, special things in the Jewish tradition about that is the, the giving the name ceremony. And this is a ceremony that continues to be uh, used in the Jewish world today. You can read about it in the traditional Jewish prayer book, the Siddur. I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. But there are a couple notable things in this passage about, uh, about John and about Yeshua being named that I have really like clear connections with uh, the Brit Milah today. You can flip it forward one more. Okay, this is a picture from my Sidur. You can see at the top it says, giving the name. And then up on the right it says, circumcision, giving the name. And this is the liturgy that they do, the English version of it. And I wanted to point out two interesting things. It, uh, it begins by saying, Our God and the God of our forefathers, preserve this child for his father and mother. And may his name be called in Israel. And then they say the baby boy's name for the first time. And I guarantee you, everybody was like, wow, what are they going to name him? And this is how they announce it. His name will be whatever, Ben, whatever, son of whoever. May his father rejoice in the issue of his loins, and may his mother exult in the fruit of her womb. And uh, it's interesting that there's this connection between the eighth day and joy. Because what does it say about Yochanan the Immerser? In uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 14, it says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. That's a classic Jewish connection there. Also, uh, if we look on a little farther towards the bottom, the second last line <clears throat> says, May this little one, Hakatan, and then they give the baby's name, son of the father's Hebrew name, become what? Great. Do you know what was said about both Yochanan the Immerser and Yeshua the Messiah in conjunction with their births? It was said, He will become great. Isn't that interesting? So, of course, for someone who is fluent with this Jewish tradition, when the, when the messenger was saying this about bringing great joy and about becoming great in the sight of the Lord, this is classic. I mean, they were automatically referencing the, the liturgy for the circumcision. So it just gives us a deeper sense of what was going on there and uh, the meaning that was anchored in these people's minds. In uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 15, that's where it says, He'll be great in the sight of Yahweh. And uh, then also in Luke chapter 2, no, verse uh, 1, verse 32, in reference to Messiah. It says, He will be great, and will be called ben Elion, the son of the Most High. All right. So, uh, one more fascinating example of that is, I took a couple of pictures 
for, again from my Sidur, from my prayer book, I had mentioned that there's a prayer that the observant Jewish people pray three times a day. It's, come, it's called the Shemona Esrei, the 18 blessings, and it's 18 little subsections. And it's fascinating to note the similarities between this prayer and the Lord's Prayer that Yeshua taught us. It's almost like the Lord's Prayer is a condensed version of this bigger traditional Jewish prayer. And the 14th blessing says this, The offspring of your servant David, may you speedily cause to flourish and enhance his pride through your salvation, your Yeshua. For we hope for your salvation, your Yeshua, all day long. Blessed are you, Lord, who causes the pride of salvation, Yeshua, to flourish. Now, actually, the Hebrew word there translated as pride is the word horn. Who causes the horn of salvation to flourish. The Hebrew term there is Karen Yeshua. You can see it right, right here. Matzmiach Keren Yeshua. And uh, we see that there. Who causes the horn of salvation. Now what's interesting is the father of the Messiah, Joseph, and the father of John, Zechariah, prayed this prayer every day of their lives from when they could first, like, when they could first talk. And did you notice that that phrase also comes up when Zechariah is, uh, is uttering a prophetic word and he's celebrating the coming of Messiah. And he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 69, Luke 1, 69, he says, I'll, I'll read verse 68 also. He says, Baruch Yahweh Elohei Israel, blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a Karen Yeshua, a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. It's the same phrase. So he's, what he's saying there is, wow, the thing that we've been praying three times a day for hundreds of years is being answered before my very eyes. And the cool thing is, this prayer that the ultimate Davidic king would come, it mentions Yeshua three times because Yeshua and salvation are the same word. <laughs> Did you notice that? I used to attend the, one of the conservative synagogues in Saskatoon on a weekly basis with another Messianic Jewish friend of mine. And when we would sing this, he would always sing the part about Yeshua really loud. <laughs> um, just because we know who ultimately this is pointing to. Okay, the subject of the week is the question, who is the greatest enemy of Israel? Is, was it these guys in ancient times? The uh, Roman soldiers? Here's a picture of a phalanx of Roman soldiers. Devastating. Um, as for Israel today also, is it these guys? Uh, Fatah, um, doing a demonstration march. Who's the greatest enemy of Israel? Is it, uh, is it Hamas? Is it... Uh, here's another picture of a Hamas rally. Or is it the UN? Is the UN the greatest enemy of Israel? The UN... Uh, Oh man, I recently heard a really hilarious quote about that. It was something like, if there was some anti-Semitic country in Africa with like extreme anti-Israel uh, sentiments, and it was said, you know, if this country were to introduce a UN resolution against Israel saying that the earth is flat and Israel made the earth flat, then it would go through in the UN. The, the UN has a history for being relatively anti-Israel. So are these guys the ultimate enemy of Israel? Here's a picture of the UN buildings again. And a picture of you in General Assembly. Is it these guys? Or is it him? Barack Obama and his uh, plastic lightsaber. Is it this dude? Ahmadinejad. He hates Israel. Is it this, is this, this gentleman, the head of the Roman Catholic Church? Who is the greatest enemy of Israel? Now, you know, if you, if you took a poll of Jewish people, probably you'd get a pretty good, uh, you'd probably get a pretty good selection on all these characters saying, yes, this person is the greatest enemy of Israel today. But I want to suggest a radically different alternative to you. And I want you to tell me what you think, okay? The reason I'm, ta I'm talking about this is because in Luke 171, in reference to the Messiah, it says that in verse 70, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, salvation from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us. So there's this great hope that the people of Israel have to be saved from their enemies in the Messiah. And yet Yeshua, by all appearances, let them down. He didn't drive out the Romans. Um, there continues to be some very popular anti-Semites in this world. 
Anti-Semitism is alive and well in the world and has been in history. If Yeshua is the Messiah, then why hasn't he saved Israel from her enemies? Well, maybe because flesh and blood isn't the greatest enemy of Israel. Maybe people aren't what this is talking about. Maybe people are more just pawns in a cosmic battle. I want to give you an alternative suggestion here. Let's look at Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 26. He says something about the ultimate enemy who is going to be defeated. He's like the last one that is going to be destroyed. Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. He says, the last enemy to be abolished is death. So let me ask you, what's worse? Having countries that hate Israel surrounding her and that want to totally destroy her or is it worse to be spiritually dead? Is it worse for the Jewish people to be spiritually dead? And to be stuck in a dead religion? It's worse to be spiritually dead. Because when we meet Messiah as Jewish people, as the people of Israel, and our hearts come to life, and we respond to the covenant with, with like strong devotion and righteous lifestyles, then God's going to come through for us. He said, if you do what's right and you stay true to my covenant, I'm going to destroy your enemies. I'm going to back them all off. You're not going to have any problems with enemies. I'm going to bring peace to your land. So the ultimate enemy of Israel isn't flesh and blood. The ultimate enemy of Israel is sin. Because to the degree that Israel lives in sin is the degree to which they lose. And the degree to which the people of Israel are saved and live a righteous life in faith is the degree to which they're going to win. And that's how Yeshua came to save his people. It starts in the heart of individuals. It, doesn't, it isn't a military solution. It isn't a diplomatic answer. Although there is a place, I believe, where God is the God of armies and he does provide military victories for his people. We, we've seen that in the last 60 years of Israel's history. So that's something radical that I wanted to offer to you, that concept. Uh, I'm a, you know, there's this thing. Some people are iffy about whether Christ is actually God or not. Uh, you know, we, we talk about the deity of Yeshua. I mean, of course, he's the son of the Most High, but is, is it actually safe to say, yes, he is my God? Yes, he is Elohim. Would it even be safe to call him Yahweh Yeshua? And especially, I think, in the Messianic Jewish community, some people are struggling with their Christology. They're trying to figure out exactly who he is. And I want to give you an insight from the book of Luke. You can change the picture. <laughs> that, uh, that, that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the early believers were actually comfortable with calling Yeshua Yahweh. That they were okay with calling him the Lord. As in reference to the Lord God of Israel. Uh, let's look at Luke chapter 2 verse 11. Luke 2.11. Luke 2.11 says... Uh, Today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is, the NASB renders it, Christ the Lord. The, uh, the question is, you know, these guys were Hebrew speakers, um, maybe with some Aramaic thrown in also. So what was the messenger actually saying to them in their original tongue? This is interesting. Um, the Western branch of Christianity has always had the Greek New Testament to read. But the Eastern branch has had the Aramaic New Testament. Aramaic is very closely related to Hebrew. So sometimes if the Greek is a little fuzzy about what the original uh, term was, you can go to the Aramaic and you can make fascinating discoveries. I have a copy of the Aramaic. It's called the Peshitta here. I've read through the whole thing in the Hebrew translation. And there's some fascinating insights here. But the interesting thing is what the Aramaic here says. In the Aramaic, he is called Maria Meshicha. Now, Meshicha is the same thing as Messiah, right? So, you know, where it says Christ, that's what it's talking about. But the first term there is Maria. Now, in the Aramaic New Testament, when it's talking about Yeshua being the master, it's the, it calls him Maran. It literally means our master, okay? Everybody say Maran, our master, okay? But here, it doesn't call him Maran, it calls him Maria. Now, what's, a, what's smashing about that is, in the whole Aramaic Bible, wherever it has Yahweh in Hebrew... God's personal name, it has Maria in the Aramaic. This is God's personal name. If you were to translate this to Hebrew accurately, you would be calling him Yahweh Yeshua. Or in this case, Yahweh the Messiah. That's who your Savior is. And the early believers were not afraid to say that. 
They considered it safe theology and safe Christology to say that. And we can feel safe about that also. So share that insight with any of your friends or anyone you know who may be questioning the deity of Messiah. The deity of Messiah is a non-negotiable. It's who he is. Let's look at Leviticus together. You can toggle back to Leviticus and just stay there. Put both your thumbs in Leviticus. Let's look at chapter 1 together. Okay, (laughs) how many of you have been talking with someone or heard someone talking and saying, yeah, I've decided I'm going to read through the whole Bible. It's going to be awesome and they're so enthusiastic. And the next question is, well, did you get to Leviticus yet? (laughs) I I, I think there have probably been quite a few people who had high hopes of reading through the Bible and they hit Leviticus and they just lose all their energy. It's just, you know, Leviticus is different. There's There's some stuff in there that can just go over your head. You blink and you miss it. It's just like, okay, I know this is the word of God and I know it's important, but how does this apply to me? Like, what is the Almighty trying to say to me through this? And I actually, I love reading the book of Leviticus for several reasons. Leviticus is the middle book of the Torah. You could say that it's the center of God's law. There's something about his heart in it. Uh, Interestingly enough, the first verse that a Jewish child learns when they begin learning the scriptures is Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 the Shema, that we we sang today. But the first book that a Jewish child learns when they begin reading is, guess which book? The book of Leviticus. Now you know why Jews are stereotypically so smart. You get your kids started on Leviticus and they're going to be smart. (laughs) But um, Leviticus isn't boring. I'll tell you you a a really cool insight. This is something personal. When I was growing up, And I would hear the master's parables in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. He would conclude them with this little saying. And I don't know why, but it always just grabbed me. There's something about it that really grabbed me. He said in Matthew 13, verse 52, Therefore every scribe, a scribe is a Torah scholar. It's someone who who studies the word in Hebrew and goes deep in it. Therefore every scribe who becomes a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure new things and old. And uh, that's what we're all about in our congregation. We're like that scribe. We are people who go deep in the Hebrew text. We get excited about Leviticus. And we, we love discovering those old treasures, but we also love bringing forth the new treasures of the new covenant and the reality of these things in our lives through the, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So that, that's, that's like a theme verse for Crown of Messiah Messianic Congregation. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, about the scribe. So let's, let's kind of dig into this and let's find some of those old treasures. What do you think? I'm going to have to dig deep here. All right. The first thing we're going to note, is you can uh, scroll forward one more, this is the very first word in the book of Leviticus, and it begins with the letter Va. Uh, va is actually a word in and of itself. What does it mean? M. Did you know the book of Leviticus begins with an and? Why does it begin with an and? Well, because the book of Leviticus is about the priesthood and the power of the priesthood and how a priest is to conduct his life. And in the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about us as a priesthood under Messiah and what that means. Because we are a different priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. We have a different job description. We have a different mission. And it's really exciting when we begin studying this and doing some comparative analogies. But uh, we're going to learn in the next couple of weeks about why the and is there. It's because Exodus has to proceed Leviticus. The events in the book of Exodus and what they represent in our lives have to precede us being the awesome priesthood that we can be for God. So we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks, but I wanted to give you that, that, uh, that trailer right now. Also, the, uh, oh, you can go back to that for a second. Yeah. Um, this first word here, it says, uh, like Yahweh called. And the word there in Hebrew is kara. Everybody say kara. It is, it's like, it's not just a yoo-hoo kind of, oh, yoo-hoo, uh, Moses. It's more like a really deep heart's cry. It's the same word for crying out. It's the same word when the patriarchs would like get on their knees and they would like pray, like Sharice said, pray their guts out. Like, you know when you just cry out from the depths of your spirit? It's that word. And that tells us something. It says that there's something in the book of Leviticus where if we listen closely, we will hear the heart cry of our Creator. This isn't just a book of rules. It's not just a list of weird, archaic things. There's something deep 
in the book of Leviticus pulsing. It's the heartbeat of our creator. And we're going we're gonna to discover that. So hopefully that helps set the tone for you. Uh, sometimes if we come from a Gentile background, we're tempted to look at the law, look at the book of Leviticus, and kind of think it's dumb. Or it's like, doesn't apply for today. Or it's like, whoa, those are some really weird things. Or wow, like what barbaric laws or whatever. I, I've heard these things. And it's not only people in the world who promulgate those sentiments. I've even heard people in the church say stuff like that. It's important to remember that the book of Leviticus is scripture. It's a revelation of Messiah. It is 100% true, and it is an expression of who God is. He is just. He is righteous. He's holy. He's compassionate. He's good. He's altogether loving. And uh, we're going to discover how the book of Leviticus is a revelation of the Father's heart. That's going to be fun. Uh, uh, Paul in Romans chapter 3, he mentioned that it's actually a great thing to be Jewish. He said it's an advantage to be circumcised. Why? Romans chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. Because to them was committed the oracles of God. So the book of Leviticus technically, it's actually not the property of Gentiles. The book of Leviticus technically is the property of the Jewish people. So if, you know, if, if, if we're coming from a Gentile background and we don't understand some things in the book of Leviticus, that's okay. It's like, it, the Bible is your heritage, but on the greater scale, just, just leave some of that practical stuff to the Jewish people. You know, if God is calling them in our generation to rebuild the temple, and if I were to share with you some of the miraculous stories about the people heading up the movement to rebuild the temple today, that's okay, we'll just let them do that. We won't speak against that. Uh, Paul talked also in Romans chapter, uh, where is it, like Romans 9, 10, and 11, he talked about how if we come from a Gentile background, it's almost possible to get arrogant against the Jewish people. We can become little know-it-alls. And it's important, Paul instructed believers from the nations to just stay humble with regards to the Jewish people and, uh, and the Torah that's been entrusted to the Jewish people. So that's a, that's a practical word of wisdom, I believe, that will be very relevant to the body of Christ in the next five or ten years as some massive events unfold in the land of Israel. We just, uh, whatever our background, we just want to express support for the people of Israel, love for them, and we want to strengthen their hands in accomplishing the mission that the Father's given them. Here's something really cool. I'm going to give you another insight that will set the tone for the book of Leviticus. You can just skip one over. There's a little note at the bottom of the page. And it's a little note that says in verse 1, the olive, which is a letter, is tiny. So if you want to skip over, let's have a look at that. I took a picture of it for you. Can you see how the last letter there is tiny? It's a little itty-bitty olive. Why is it tiny? It's in the very first Word of the book of Leviticus. It's like one of these cool deep secrets, right? You don't get this in the English translation because they just can't translate it. But this is ancient. Uh, Jewish commentary from almost 2,000 years ago talks about these little textual aberrations. So we know that they're very ancient. We know that they were even around in Messiah's time. And we know that they have some, they're like little hints to some deeper treasures in the text. Well, here's the interesting thing. The Aleph represents the Messiah. How many of you know that Yeshua said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega in the book of Revelation? The, if, if indeed Yeshua, who was a Hebrew-speaking Savior, was speaking to John, who was also a Hebrew speaker, maybe he was actually talking Hebrew to him. I, I think he probably was. If that's the case, Yeshua said, I'm the Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, just like Alpha is the first letter of the Greek al- alphabet. So somehow this points to Messiah. How does it point to Messiah? Well, it's little. If you really want to see the olive, you have to look hard. You have to kind of get your face right down there in the book and focus. And that's true of the book of Leviticus also. If you want to get those deep revelations of Messiah, you really have to get your, get your face real down close to the book of Leviticus. Because otherwise, you just miss it. I mean, really. You know, we were talking about how you read Leviticus, it can just go right over your head so easy. I'm like that. I just, I start hearing this stuff about popping birds heads off and what you do with the liver. And like, I'm just gone, right? It's so easy to zone out. But, and that's why, like, that's why the olive is little. It's like, you gotta watch really closely or you're gonna miss this. So, that's what I get out of that. The other thing is, the letter olive represents the first high priest of the uh, Aaronic priesthood. What was his name? Aaron. What was the first letter of his name? Aleph, that's correct. What it's saying is, even though Aaron is the Kohen Hagadol, he's the big priest of the Aaronic priesthood, he's little in comparison to the ultimate priest 
of the greater priesthood that preceded the Levitical priesthood, that Melchizedek was a member of, and that is going to be lasting after death is abolished and the Levitical priests are out of a job. So what it's saying there is, even though Aaron is the priest of this system, and it's a good system, and it has its, its place, there's a greater high priest and there's a greater priesthood. That's messianic insight for you. And let me tell you, when you read some of the Jewish traditional commentary about why the Aleph is small, it doesn't make as much sense unless you believe in Yeshua. Because when you believe in Yeshua, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, this makes so much sense why there's the little Aleph. It's totally messianic. I'm sure that there's a call in the book of Leviticus. Hmm, I like that. Okay, let's just, I'm just gonna take you through a couple of words in the book of, in these first chapters that are really meaningful, and then we'll wrap up, okay? And, uh, I'm gonna go through this pretty fast, so if you wanna go back over your notes later, or if you wanna go back and watch this on our website to get some of the deeper things here, you can do that. In 1 verse 2, where it says about any man bringing an offering, the Hebrew word there is Adam. Adam means all of humanity. It means everybody. And what that tells us is offerings from the very beginning are for everybody. It's talking about the universality of the message of Leviticus. All humanity is invited to worship. His house will be a house of prayer for only the Jewish people. All peoples, that's correct. Amen. Um, holy language, word of the week. Uh, if you didn't get that, you can either check it out on our Facebook fan page, the Classical Hebrew fan page, or you can have me forward it to you. But uh, we talked about the Hebrew word nadav, which is the word to approach, to draw near, to come close. It's the word translated as, oh sorry, that was the one before, it's karav here. Yeah, thank you, karav. And uh, it's, it means offering. It's the heart of the sacrificial system. So that's a big one. We're not going to get into all of that. In uh, chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about the olah, the burnt offering. And it doesn't actually mean burnt offering. It means something that's offered up, something that ascends. You know the word aliyah. It's the same root, olah. And uh, we hear echoes of this same word in Paul's letters, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and Romans chapter 15, verses 15 to 16. You can look those up later. Um, in Leviticus 1, 7 and 1, 12, it gives an order. And I believe this is the experience of the New Covenant. It talks about how the, uh, the fire is first, and then the wood goes on the fire. And what, that, what that's a picture of is like when the Holy Spirit is ignited in your heart in the New Covenant experience, because that was like the big promise in the New Covenant, then what goes on next? The wood. The wood is a picture of the cross. All that to say, you know, you're going to get so turned on to God, and you just feel this fire burning in you, and you love Him so much, and then all of a sudden things get hard. Well, that's the wood going on the fire. That's the experience of the cross in your life. And the result of that is only going to be, it's going to stoke that fire in you. So just persevere and stick it out. And you're just going to burn brighter and brighter for Him. Um, in chapter 1, verse 9, we have this phrase that's repeated over and over in Leviticus, Isha reach nichoach. It's like a fire offering that's a fragrant aroma. And uh, Shaul, Paul was in touch with this phrase. He talked about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, uh, where he talked about how we're the fragrance of Messiah to everybody around us. Some people love you, some people hate you for it. And he also mentioned that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. In chapter 2, verse 1, it talks about who's going to bring an offering, and it uses the Hebrew word nephesh, if a nephesh brings an offering. Now this is interesting because that's the word translated soul, but it literally means your breathing pattern. What does that mean? Well, it, what, it, what it connotes is like you for who you really are, your personality. And what we hear is just the Father's invitation to keep it real in worship, just come to Him as you are. You don't have to make stuff up. If you're really feeling like you don't know where he is or you're not even sure if he's real or this whole worship thing is boring, you know what? Come to him and tell him that. Share that with him. That's the idea behind that. And maybe he'll change it for you. I think he likes doing that. <laughs> In uh, chapter 2, verse 14, it mentions Bikurim, uh, first fruits, and Aviv, barley. That's the season we're in right now. We'll be talking about that more in conjunction with Passover. Um, in chapter 3, verse 3, it talks about the entrails. Can I give you a deep insight about entrails? <laughs> okay, the entrails get offered to God. What's the deeper insight about that for you? That you should, you should pray and give Him your intestines? 
No, the, okay, yeah, give them your guts, that's cool. The Hebrew word there is the, like the kerev. And that's the word for the insides. Like, it's what's inside. And what it is, is it's a picture that like, the Father just doesn't want you to go through motions and do rituals and do stuff. He doesn't really care about that nearly so much as he cares about if you want to give him, like, your insides. Give him your guts. How's that for a practical application of the, the law about giving, burning the entrails and the fat on the entrails on the altar? <laughs> what? Yeah, you can't hide anything. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you an insight about the liver too. Chapter 3, verse 4 talks about how you give him the liver. The interesting thing is the word liver is kaved. Everybody say kaved. It means uh, something that's heavy, something that covers, because the liver is a big, chunky organ. It covers some of your other organs. Do you know a related Hebrew word to kaved, the word for liver? I've heard the word kavod. What does that mean? His glory. Did you know the Hebrew word for liver and glory is almost the same thing? Because they're both heavy and they both cover something. Now what does, okay, no, no, track with me here. What does this tell us about the body of Messiah? The liver cleans out what in your body? Toxins, poison, things that would damage you. So what does the glory do when it comes to the body of Messiah? It does the same thing as the liver. It cleans all the garbage out. So if there are people who are harboring idols in their lives, who have secret sin and they don't want to give it up, then when Messiah comes in a powerful way, those people have to either give that stuff up or they're not going to be able to stay in the room. They won't be able to handle it. And that's a good thing. It's like when the light shines, the demons freak out. They start to squirm. They can't handle it. And that's a good thing. When, when you begin to experience that inside, and you know what? We all have stuff in our lives that we're not aware of. When the Messiah begins to shine his light, and you begin to feel stuff in your heart that's just really gross, just let it go. Let it go. Don't hold on to it. Let it go and grab hold of Messiah. Because he, he's going to give you real life. And following him is an adventure. So that's the lesson behind the liver. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9, talks about the backbone. The Hebrew word for backbone is atzeh. It's related to the Hebrew word eitz for tree and eitzah for counsel. I'm not going to get into all the cool insights, but there's this triangulation in Hebrew between your backbone, trees, and counsel. Uh, Psalm 1 talks about the tree planted by streams of water. It's the guy who's meditating in the Torah all the time. He's deeply contemplative. There's some cool connections there. Uh, chapter 3, verse 17, it gives something that's, uh, he uses like the strongest possible language that he could here. Leviticus chapter 3, verse 17. He says, don't eat any fat and don't eat any blood. And then he went on to specify that this was a temporary commandment that only applied to people in the land of Israel. You can beat me out if, uh, if that was wrong. Just go, beep. Okay, what does it say? It says it's a law forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Don't eat any fat or any blood. And I believe that that's why in the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, they said, okay guys, we have a couple of basic requirements here and these are non-optional. You've got to do this. Don't eat any meat with the blood in it. Like if they strangled it in a non-kosher way, stay away from it. So that's why, because Leviticus says this is a non-negotiable. In uh, chapter 4, verse 13, we have the Hebrew words for congregation and community of Israel, adat and kahal. Interestingly enough, in the Septuagint, the words here for the, the congregation of Israel, the community of the people of Israel, are synagogue and ecclesia. So to the Jewish believer in the first century who maybe read the Septuagint, the Greek version, you know, these words synagogue and ecclesia, they were talking about the people of Israel. They continue to be talking about the people of Israel, whether they be native-born or grafted in which means everybody in this room. <laughs> Chapter 4, verses 2 and 13, talks about unintentional error. It's like if you make a mistake. Um, it's also the Hebrew word for, like, kind of being crazy. It's just, a, there's this Hebrew word I wanted to tell you, mashuga. Mashuga is a Hebrew word for crazy. Everybody say mashuga. If you're, like, down in L.A., down in the district, then you would say mashugana. Everybody say mashugana. So next time someone in your life's just getting a little crazy, you say, man, you're getting a little too mashugana here. You just settle down. So there's a little Hebrew blurb for you. Um, we're just doing Hayasod right now. I thought it was cool that that Hebrew word for foundation, like the uh, introductory course to Jewish roots that FFOZ uh, offers, is in this parasha. Chapter 4, verse 18, it talks about the base of the altar. And the Hebrew word there for base or foundation is Yesod. 
Hayasod. So, for those of us who are taking the Hayasod course, just thought you'd find it interesting that that's an actual Hebrew word and that's actually used in the Torah. Hmm? A rock, yes. Okay, um, something I love about this parsha is when you look at it, like in my scriptures here, they kind of have it broken up into chunks. And starting in chapter 4, and, and also in chapter 5, every single like section ends with, and he will be forgiven. Did you notice that? And he will be forgiven. You know, when, when, he, when a person sins unintentionally, he should, he should ask the Father's forgiveness. He should offer this offering for the penalty, and he will be forgiven. There is so much forgiveness in the Old Testament, in God's law. And it is so touching that from the very beginning, his mercy, he wants his mercy to triumph over his judgment for those who will repent. And uh, I really like the Hebrew concept of forgiveness. The Hebrew word is salah. Can we all say salah? In modern Hebrew, if like you're in Israel and you bump into somebody, well, actually you don't ask their forgiveness because Israelis are, they have like no personal space and they can be like, according to Canadians, they can be relatively rude. <laughs> so you wouldn't ask for forgiveness. But if you were to, you'd say slicha. Slicha, you've probably heard that. So that, the word salah, it has a related word, shalach, which is the Hebrew word for like an apostle being sent out. And what we get behind that is, the word picture in Hebrew for forgiving is to do that. If you're holding on to something, you let it go. You let it go, and it's gone. That's the Hebrew word picture for forgiveness, for, for slicha. And uh, I'll finish with this one. Chapter 5, verse 1. It talks about how if you're a witness, then you are obligated to tell what you've seen, to tell what you know. I wonder if this doesn't apply to us. How, how many of you have experienced a time in your life when the Father spoke to you from His Word? When He revealed His Messiah to you? When He told you something personally? I think we've all been there. It's part of the New Covenant experience. The interesting thing is, according to the Torah, you have become a witness. And it's your job now to go out and to tell what you know, to tell what you've heard, to tell what you've seen, what he's revealed to you. And that's what we're going to do this week. So let's finish with that. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.